to Romans chapter 7. And as you find that, you can stand, Romans chapter 7, and I'll read the first 13 verses. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful." Let's pray. God, we again um, look to you that by your Spirit indwelling us, giving us the mind of Christ, that we might understand your Word and that it might live in us, God. That you would, would, would work in us, God, to grant that understanding, illumination, but also, Lord, to to apply, to work in our lives, that we might live true to you in every respect. In Christ's name, amen. Let me see it. Well, everybody loves Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 7 is a little difficult. But Romans 8 wouldn't be nearly as good if it, as it is if it weren't for Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 is very, very important. truly is. It, it is kind of the, the sandwich between Romans chapter 6. Everybody likes Romans 6. Present yourselves to God. Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation. We live according to the Spirit of God. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. We like Romans 6. We like Romans 8. But Romans 7 is what really helps us to make sense of the good news of Romans 8. Romans 7 is kind of bad news. And it's really divided um, principally in the two parts, the first 13 verses, and then from 14 to the end. And 
Paul is still following here in the first half of Romans 7. He's following up on a statement back in chapter 6, verse 14. So if you look at that, it kind of helps put in context for us to remember what he is after. Verse 14 of Romans 6, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Having made that statement, Paul then spends the rest of chapter 6 talking about a master-slave analogy, where the sin, the sin nature is the master, and we are the slave. And the only way to be released from that master is for us to die, and that death is, being, uh, is through faith in Christ. We are identified with Christ's death and His resurrection. And once the, once the slave dies, the master doesn't die. Once the slave dies, he is released from the master if he's raised from the dead. And he is free to serve a new master, that new master being the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have been released to a new master to serve that new master, the consequence is everything that we would want. Sanctification, life. But if we continue to serve the old master of sin then the consequence will be everything that we've always been shameful of. The things that we were doing before we were even believers. And the wages of sin will always be death. Well, it's almost like Paul says, okay, that was an illustration, but you can only go so far with it. Let me give you another illustration. And now he uses marriage, another metaphor, for the same principle that we are not bound any longer to sin. We are not under law we are under grace. And so he uses the marriage metaphor here. And, and again, simply an illustration to try and get across the point that, that we will bear fruit in accord with what we are wed to. So here's the illustration. Again, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Now, right from the face of it, it seems like Paul is saying that the bad husband in this analogy is law. And, that, and the law is the problem. But we already read, remember verse 13, so we can just kind of skip ahead to where he comes, to, I mean, verse 12, where he comes toward his conclusion. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's not arguing here that we are that the husband in the analogy is the law, and the law is a bad thing. The law is a good thing. And so there's another husband here. We'll read through it. Verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So then she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And here's his application. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die. But he just got finished talking about the husband dying. But then he says, you were made to die. Because the point is, you by law are bound to this husband. And the husband is not going to go away. So if the law tells you you are bound until death and the one you're married to is not going to die, then the only hope you have is what? For you to die (laughs) because he's in good health. And so he's not going to die. 
You have to die. That's the point. So again, this is not that, that it dies or, or the other party dies, but once again, I die. So all through these chapters here, it is never that the other party dies. It is not sin which dies. I die. So verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. So the law doesn't have jurisdiction over dead people. And so if I die, and then I am raised back to life, then that law can't come back around and say, hey, pay your taxes. Hey, obey the law, whatever it is, because I died. And so the law has no jurisdiction over me whatsoever. And I think it's about, you know, one analogy that I sometimes think of is when I married um, Patsy um, from Pennsylvania, a Yankee. I, I did two good things for her. One, I changed her last name. I delivered her from that. <laughs> Funk. Terrible last name. And I, and I delivered her from her last name, and I also delivered her from Yankee land. Oh, man. I moved her down to the fair state nation of Texas. She never knew there was a Yankee southern problem until after she moved down here. But, um, and she didn't even know there was a Mason-Dixon line and she lived north of it, but that's okay. I delivered her nonetheless. Now, there are, are state income taxes in Pennsylvania. There are, there are state laws in Pennsylvania. Some of those state laws are identical with here in Texas. Some of them are different. But now that she has been married to me and left Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has no jurisdiction over her. Now, if she were to get some notice in the mail and say, oh, by the way, you haven't paid your, your state taxes, income taxes, for the last 25 years, well, she can joyfully ignore it. Or she could go, oh my, I'm in trouble. And I have to give in to the demands that Pennsylvania is making upon me. That's how sometimes we live as Christians. Because the point is, the law of Pennsylvania has not gone away. But I am not under the jurisdiction of Pennsylvania. Because I don't live there anymore. In fact, it's that, it's that whole concept of in what is the sphere that you live in which is so integral to Paul's argument here in chapter 7, but especially it's going to come up in chapter 8. And so he'll say, for example, look at verse 5. While you were in the flesh, past tense. While you were in Pennsylvania. But you're not in Pennsylvania anymore. You're a Christian. You're not in the flesh any longer. Sometimes we fly off the handle and we'll say, man, he got in the flesh. Paul would say, technically speaking, that's impossible. If you are in Christ, you are no longer in the flesh. You cannot be in Christ and in flesh at the same time. Just like you can't be in Pennsylvania and be in Texas at the same time. You are in one or the other. You cannot be in both places. Either you are in Christ or you are in, or you are in the flesh. One or the other. And so in past tense, you were in were in the flesh. Not being in the flesh any longer, sin has no jurisdiction over you. The law is still there. The law has not gone away. Sin has not gone away. But you died. Therefore, sin can't tell you what to do because the law which binds you 
has released you because you died. The sin is still there. The sin principle. The law is still there. But you died. Let's go back to verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Meaning that as Christ died and you were identified with His death, then you died as He died. Why? That you might be joined to another. Because the problem is not the law, it is the one that you are married to. The law says you've got to stay married. All right? Or die. And so Jesus says that's the solution. Your death, not the death of the law, not the death of sin, your death. You were made to die so that you might be joined to another. And then another purpose statement to to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So you were joined to another for the purpose that you might bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. If I'm married to Christ, then the fruit of God will be produced in my life. If I'm married to the flesh, then the fruit of flesh will be produced in my life. What is what is True to the nature of God? Life. What is true to the nature of flesh? Death. Every time. Reminds me of a story. I'm very hesitant to say this because I don't want to offend anybody, but, you know, I have no discretion whatsoever. Um, (laughs) The Chinese couple, the Wong family, that gave birth to a blonde, blue-eyed, round-eyed baby. And they looked at that baby and they said, the father said, this isn't right. And he named that baby Sum Ting. Sum Ting Wong. (laughs) That's not the way it works. You will give birth according to the nature of the father. And a Chinese father... He's going to have a Chinese baby. It's the way it works. Fruit trees, peach tree bears peaches, apple tree bears apples. Every time. And so he's saying, if the husband that I'm married to is the flesh, sin, then the product of that union every time will be death. No matter how good the motivation is. This is what we, get, we, don't, we don't get stuck on. And we should be stuck on it. That no matter how good the motivation of the flesh is, and many times it's praiseworthy, if it comes from the flesh and doesn't have its origin in God, then the consequence every time is death. Good intentions will not negate the fruit of the flesh. And the fruit will always be in keeping with the parent. Death. Every time. Abraham and his good intentions went to Hagar, produced Ishmael. The Bible uses that as a picture of what the flesh produces. And the consequence was not to the glory of God. It was death. And there's been conflict to this day because it was a union of flesh and not a union that God wanted. And it's going to be that way. It's never going to change. And so you can't try and convert the... Okay, you know, now God, He can work all things together for good. There's no doubt. But I can't change it. It's it's what it is. 
no matter how good my intentions are. And they can be noble. And we've all seen this. In the best of intentions, things just blow up in our faces. And, and many times I've seen in my life where the Spirit of God says, it's not because of the other person. It's because you did this from your own flesh. You went ahead of me, Charlie. You went and made that, that talk. You had that confrontation. You did what you thought you should do. And you were moving from what you believed to be true. I was reading this week in a book that Oswald Chambers um, wrote. And, he, and I just stumbled across it. There's a passage on, on um, um, following impulses. And he was really against it, which I found very um, relative for today because so much about today is, is following the impulses. You know, whatever impulse comes to mind, that's the Spirit of God. And he says following impulses is what a child does. God is about developing character, His character in us. And if I'm simply always following the impulses and whims of life, then I am living childishly. And I'm not growing in the faith, which is the development of character. And there are many times in life when I cannot follow the impulses in life. It is the immature thing to do, just to simply follow whatever comes into mind. But I need to learn to take those thoughts captive, those impulses captive to the obedience of Christ, and to realize this may not be from God. Just because I feel strongly about it, because I have a passion about it, it still needs to be surrendered to Christ. Then I would learn to listen to Him and not just be driven by anything that comes to mind. I had a, a person last year tell me that they were in some kind of situation with other believing Christians and they were into practicing popcorn prayer. And I what is popcorn prayer? And they said, well, everybody just stands together and they just pray about the first thing that pops into their mind. And so one, a boom, 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 boom. And there's the assumption that everything that comes into my mind is from the Spirit of God. That is childishness. That is, there's nothing that says anything like that in Scripture. Yes, I've been given the mind of Christ, but I'm also to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And not every thought is from the Lord. And so again, the, it is a disciplined life. Not one that negates the Spirit of God, but understand that, this, that one aspect of the, fruit of, of the fruit of the Spirit is self-discipline. That, I'm sorry, self-control. That God brings this about in our lives. And I'm not simply responding to every impression, every impulse that comes along. So no matter what my good intentions are, and I can label it as Spirit, I can say it's the person of Jesus that led me to do this, if it is flesh... Then every time, the consequence is going to be death. Has to be. It is, it is the law, as A.W. Tozer calls it, the law of the harvest. And if I reap to the flesh, I will sow death and corruption. And if I, and if I, and if I I'm sorry, the other way around, if I sow to the flesh, I'll reap death and corruption. If I sow to the spirit, I reap, as Romans 8 is going to tell us, life and peace. What does the law do? Again, keep in mind, the problem's not the law. But God makes me die. To the law, yes. But the law's not the problem. It is the law that tells me I am bound. I am bound to, in this case, the sin nature. But He wants me to die. 
that I might be joined to another, that I might bear fruit for God. And then a third purpose statement in verse 6, that we might serve in the newness of the Spirit. Verse 6, For now, we had, now that we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The orientation of my life as a Christian. And I want to be careful about this. It is not the law. Now, the reason I have to be very careful about it, and we know, amen, it's not the law. But, I, but see, again, the law that, Moses, that, that Paul is talking about is the word of God. Is it not? The law came from God. And so there is a sense in which we say, I'm not bound to the law. My orientation is not the law. It almost sounds like we're saying, my orientation is not to the word. Well, there's some truth there. But again, we never stop short of Jesus. And, and Jesus, who is the living word, he will orient us to the written word. He writes it upon our hearts, Scripture says. Part of the new covenant, which we're celebrating today in communion, that he writes these things upon our hearts. They're no longer just on tablets of stone, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, but they have been written on our heart. And so the word... And again, the law is not the problem. But our orientation is first, foremost, to the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is very easy, again, and because of the nature of our flesh that's so performance-oriented, to very subtly move toward an orientation that is just a step lower than Jesus himself. His word, the law. The law is the word of God. We, we have to face that. The law is the word of God. But if my orientation is primarily toward what God has given rather than to the giver, then I'm off base. Because the Spirit of God is going to orient me to the person Jesus Christ, first and foremost, while leading me to the knowledge of Jesus through his written word, while giving me, as, as Romans 12 is going to say, or 15, I can't remember, I think it's 15, encouragement and perseverance through the scriptures, giving me sanctification through the scriptures, salvation through the scriptures, the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, through the scriptures. These are all things that the scripture says about itself. And yet, the Spirit of God will keep Jesus first. He doesn't negate the scriptures, but he keeps Jesus first. Even in, in affirming constantly the trustworthiness of scripture, the, the, the essentiality of the scriptures, that, that we cannot do without it. As 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped in every good work. We have to have the Word. But the Spirit leads us not just to stopping at the Word, but coming to the person of Jesus. Which raises the question, if... I die to the law. Is 
the law sin? Why would God have me die to it? Maybe it's sin. That's the question of verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And then he makes this interesting statement. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now we understand that. I mean, no, everybody gets it. Sign says don't touch wet paint. You want to touch it. If you've got something in your house that, that is um, adult in orientation, adult beverages, adult movies, whatever, and you make that known to your young children, these aren't for you, these are for mom and dad, there's something in that little kid that says, I want what mom and dad have. Even if it's adult bedtime, right? We go to bed at 10, you go to bed at 8. Well, I want 10. Why can't I stay up till 10? And so it's law. And it incites something in the child. I want what they want. It's producing coveting. I covet their, what they do. I covet their bedtime. I covet what they watch. I covet what they drink. Produces coveting. But here's the thing. I wouldn't know sin except through the law, and specifically the sins of the heart, coveting. But how does that prove Paul's point that the law is not sin? Because see, that's what he's saying. The law is not sin. The law shows me my sin. Here's the thing. The law cannot be simultaneously sin and expose sin. It's like it can't darkness can't expose darkness. And and light can't reveal light. Right? The only way for darkness to be revealed is by something contrary to it. Light. And so if the law is revealing my sin, then therefore the law cannot be sin. That's, I can understand that. Darkness can't reveal darkness. And light cannot illumine light. He's talking about contrary natures here. And if, sin, if law is illuminating sin, then law cannot be sin. Why is that a good thing? Why is it good? Because again, he's going to say the law is good. Why is it a good thing to have a law that illumines my sin? Doesn't feel good. May come in the person of your wife, your kids. Shouldn't have done that. That's sin. Who are you to judge me? Right? That's not grace. And yet, Paul says, that's a ministry of the law. And the law is good. It's holy. And maybe God sometimes, I know many times He does, He, he brings that ministry through other people. And we go, legalism! Paul says, it's good! Not legalism, but this ministry of the law, Paul says, is good. It isn't sin. It is good. To have the law illumine my sin. But I don't like it. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that people loving the darkness and hating the light rejected him. 
And again, the nature of my flesh is to hate the light. But the nature of God, who dwells in light, is he loves light. And so it only stands to reason that his word, and the law is his word, will bring light. Because God is light. And he dwells in light. So why is that good to have my sin exposed? Because it brings me back to reality. Because we are all capable of incredible self-deceit. Self-deception. Man, we think, I'm doing pretty good. It's like that guy I told you last week comes up to Charles Price and says, I stopped sinning years ago. Charles Price says, is your wife here? Let me talk to her. Uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't believe me. We are incredible, incapable of incredible self-deception. And man, it's, just, it's, it's amazing how I can think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And I come to the Word. Old Testament, New Testament, it is the mirror of God's life, God's nature. And I read it and I go, man, God's Spirit saying, Look in the mirror, son. You think you may be doing pretty good, but you got something on your face that doesn't belong there. And everybody else can see it. God's word exposes it. That's good. It is a good thing. But because we don't like it, because in our flesh we love the darkness and hate the light, we want to condemn the law. You're being legalistic. The law is the problem. If you were really spirit-filled and grace-oriented, you wouldn't even say anything about the law. And God says, the law is eternal. It'll never pass away. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And again, our orientation is not the law, it's Jesus. But God will use the law profitably in our lives. And one way is to bring me to the reality of myself and my desperate need for Him. It humbles me and it brings dependence to me. Verse 8, But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. There's more than one kind of coveting. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. Sin was 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 animated within me and I died in this commandment which was to result in life that's what the purpose of the purpose wasn't to kill me and it's not the law which puts me to death the commandment was to result in life but it proved to result in death for me not because of the nature of the law but because of sin for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so, you know, again, some of these things are just so simple when we see them in the lives of other people. It's always harder seeing it in the, our own lives. But we'll have a new group, crop of students that will come into his hill in a few weeks. And, and, um, and one of the reasons that, that we've really found it so profitable to have second-year students with us at his hill is because they've been through the program. And they've lived under the curfew and the daily duties that they have to do and coming time for class and getting their homework done and stuff. And, you know, and, and they've lived through it. And they've profited from it. 
And they and they and they they love what God's done in their lives, and they love His hill. They even like me, some of them. And they and, and they and they go, I want to be back for another year. I would love to be back for another year. And you put them in the dorm, and these new students come in and they go curfew, and they're serious about it. Yes, I read it before I ever came, and I even signed my name saying I would do it. But I didn't think they were serious. And it's like that every year. And they're, oh man, where is this? The Gestapo camp? Who do they think they are? And the second year students are in there going, it's not a big deal, man. Well, what's wrong with you? Well, you ought to be a big deal. You're not even human. What's wrong with you? And, and the second year students are going, listen, your problem is not the rules. Your problem is not his hill. Your problem is not Charlie. You're, God's wanting to deal with you. He's wanting you to be oriented to Him. And all this is doing is exposing something in you that you didn't even think that was there. Oh, I'm a good kid. You can ask my parents. And I've had parents call me up and say, My kid's a good kid. The problem is the rules. And I go, Did you have any rules for your kid? Well, no, they don't need them. Well, if you're giving them some, you might see a different kid. Because I'm seeing somebody different than you're describing. And God wants to go deep in us. He doesn't want us to live at the level of pretend. But at the level of reality. I need Jesus. Every day I'm desperate for Him. And one of the things is rules helps me. God's purpose is to bring me, keep me in the reality. Because I hate rules. I don't like speed limits. I don't like having to fasten my seatbelt. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Flesh. Sin. That's what that is. And God, as long as we're living on this earth, before Jesus makes it all new, He's going to have rules. So that we can see ourselves and be reminded of our desperate need for Him. His intent The the commandment is not to kill us. It is sin which brings the death. The problem is not your wife or your husband or the rules, the school, the government, whatever. It's in here. It's in here. So then, verse 12, his conclusion. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It was when Paul wrote it, and it still is today. You need to understand, Paul's not negative about the law. We are. Paul was not negative about the law. It's the Word of God. Try witnessing to a person of the Jewish faith. And I think you will often find that one of their biggest hindrances in coming to Christ is that we Christians have conveyed that Jesus came to abolish the law. And they know it can't be true. How can he be the Messiah and the killer of God's word? He did not come to cancel, annul, or to abolish the word of God. He came to fulfill it. And they know the law 
is the Word of God. So Paul's not negative about it. What he's negative about is trying to live from it. You won't. That's why he says in Galatians, how he says you are deserting Christ when you move to an orientation of law. You cannot find life in the law. That's all Paul's trying to say here. He's saying if you are living from an orientation of the Word of God, and that's where you stop, you will not find life. Isn't this what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You search the Scriptures because in them you think that you can find life, but you don't come to me. Whether it's the law of the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, or simply the law of God's written word from Genesis to Revelation, it will not give me life if I don't come to the person of Jesus Christ. That's all Paul's trying to say. Verse 13, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. May it never be. The law is not the cause of death. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. See, how, how awful is sin? Paul says, I'll show you how awful it is. Sin is so sinful that it takes something good like the law and makes it something bad. But the problem is never the law. The problem is sin. It is sin that can look at the law of God and say the law is bad. It is the word of God. But if I orient myself to anything other than Jesus, I will not have life. And that does not, again, an orientation to Jesus does not annul the Word of God. But my life is not being drawn from the pages of Scripture. My life is being drawn from the person of Jesus Christ. I really think that's all Paul's trying to get across here. He's affirming the law is good. The reason we needed to die was not because of the law, because of who we were married to. Sin. The problem is sin. Not God's word, not God's law. But if I orient myself to the law, as good as it is, and it is good, I will not live. Because it will be the flesh trying to do what the law tells me to do. And as good as the law is, if my intention is to be good based upon what the Word of God tells me, the product will be death. Because the law is not enough. The law is not enough to conquer sin. It needs something else. And that's where he's moving us. But there's something else that we'll be oriented to. And we'll think, that's enough for living the Christian life. And Paul's going to say, that didn't work either. That's what's coming up next. Until everything's removed. And the only thing left is, and that's Romans 8. Let me close this in prayer. God, I do, again, thank you for just um, laying it out for us, God. That 
Even though your word is good, your law is good, the commandment is holy and righteous and good, that it's not going to give us life. And it's not because of it being inferior so much as sin. Sin is not going to ever produce life, no matter what it weds itself to. We thank you, God, that, um, that we are not under law. We are under grace. And that our orientation by your Spirit is to the person of Jesus Christ. And as you, by your Spirit, God, remind us of the truths of your Word, the do's and the don'ts, that we would, would come to Jesus. Your Spirit's always saying, go to Jesus. That we would heed your voice and come to him who is the fulfillment of the law. Thank you for a personal relationship with you and that you have not just given us words and commandments and rules to live by, but you've brought us into a living relationship. And we thank you, God, for the offer of yourself to us as we again have commemorated today where you've given your Son freely and wholly to us. In Jesus' name.